Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Brandon Monroe of Bannerman Resources. Uh, we talked to him um, about African junior uranium companies versus North American uranium juniors. Also, how to quantify the economics um, of a project and how to time this market right. If you want our thoughts and opinions on that conversation uh, today, some of the topics discussed, and indeed the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's commentaries from experts from around the world, including our weekly uranium show, um, plus training courses on there to help you with your diligence process. We do summaries of interviews. In fact, all of our interviews to save you some time, because we know you're busy people. And most importantly, why don't you go and join a thriving community of friendly investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other, free from judgment, trolling and abuse at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? I'm well, Matt. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Long time. You've been well? Yeah, all good. All good. We're very fortunate to be in Western Australia at the moment. For sure, for sure. Hey, well, look, um, we have got this uranium week on, and we're sort of catching up with the with the great and the good and, and a few others uh, to sort of see get their take on the world of uranium um, at the moment. The, the, some, it's been an interesting few months. The last three or four months have been fascinating. Um, your share price has seen a little pop as well, hasn't it? Yeah, we've done really well since middle of December, really, um, as many of the names have, and. I'm pleased that we've achieved a lot of recognition for the work that we've put in, particularly over the last year, which didn't come initially. Uh, we we released some really good news into the market last August, and really with most of the sector, there weren't many eyeballs or eardrums listening to that. So I think we managed to play a bit of catch up between December and now. Well, that's that's what interests me because I, you know having spoken to a few companies now, I'm just wondering how much work the market has done and just how much work the companies have done and you know is it does is it deserving this uh movement and the equities price well it's going to come down company to company uh, i'm sure we're not the only company in our space that has achieved a lot in the intermittent period and in our case we released an announcement of a scoping study for really a game-changing redevelopment of our primary asset and as i said it was it, it basically didn't receive any re-rating for us at all at the time and there would be other companies in exactly that same situation and then i suppose there's other groups who are relying on the rising tide floating all boats uh, scenario to explain their share prices indeed indeed hey well um let's get in i, I want to do want to get into that and i do want to sort of have you know have a dig around and sort of try and understand the fundamentals of your business but um first of all for people new to this because as you mentioned um, not a lot of people listening last year but this year a lot more um newbies into mining investment and uranium so um for them can you give us a one minute overview of your business and i'll pick it up from there so Bannerman Resources, we are a uranium development company. Since 2006, we've been entirely focused on uranium in Namibia and specifically developing our Itango uranium project. We started out real big because back in those days, it was before Fukushima, it was a nuclear renaissance, and the name of the game was to be as big as you possibly could. And we're blessed with an enormous ore body. What we've 
realized more recently is that the market doesn't need big at the moment. It needs immediate, as in the next few years of production, and it needs flexibility and scalability. And I'm very pleased to say that in August last year, we announced the Etango 8 version of a development uh, profile for our asset. And that's a scaled down version, better economics, but more flexible. And what it enables us to do is get into production sooner with lower development hurdles. And once we're in production profitable and we start to see the market behave in the way we're convinced it will with ever increasing deficits and therefore increasing prices, we'll be perfectly positioned to be able to increase that scale further, if need be, all the way up to the envisaged giant-sized that a tango started its feasibility life as. Okay, can, can I just ask? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but um, you talked about the sort of the change of what the market wants. It, you know, it, the name of the game previously was pounds on the ground scale. Now you're talking about immediacy being the thing that it wants to see. Why do you say that? Well, there's only a handful of companies, as you look around, that can produce any level of scale in the next few years. And what we've seen with the uranium market, particularly in recent years, but it's becoming far more critical, is a market that's largely stalled in terms of price. Yes, we've, we've had some decent increases in the spot price, but there's been no term contracting to speak of. We know that the demand will be there. You, uranium's unsubstitutable as a fuel source for more than 10% of the world's electricity at a time when the electrification of everything is just increasing electricity demands even further, plus the whole emissions-free overlay and the decarbonisation overlay. We know the demand will be there for uranium, but because the market has stalled, we're in a fascinating situation where when the market does wake up and when that demand comes in through the buying acquisition of uranium, there will be a sudden uh, realisation that the world needs new projects to start immediately. It's not this year, but it will be soon. And as I say, there's only a handful, if that, of projects around the world that will be ready with producible pounds in that 2024-2025 timeframe that we envisage uh, that production being really required to feed these nuclear power plants around the world. So when you, mean, when you say stalled, I get the spot price is stalled, not a lot of term contracting happened, so it's stalled. Uh, COVID has affected um, production across the world, so that's stalled. But the demand, which all you uranium companies keep talking about, clearly isn't there then, because otherwise term contracts would be signed. They, there, there would be conversations. We're not hearing that. Well, I think you need to talk about demand in two different dimensions. The first form of demand is structural demand. So in other words, how much uranium is being consumed around the world every year. And we've got a clear picture of that because you can't hide a nuclear power plant. And uh, with very, very few exceptions, their output is public. And so both as Bannerman, but also as World Nuclear Association, I'm very involved in understanding that burn-up rate, as it's called in the industry, how much uranium reactors are consuming each year. Now, that's one level of demand, but that's not the level of demand that actually grows and drives price. The other level of demand is how much uranium is being bought in the market. And that's where we've seen a disconnect and this stall, if you like, because since Fukushima, commercial inventories have been able to grow. 
And so utilities have been able to do some buying to make up for their consumption of uranium, but they've also been wearing off their inventories or underbuying as it's known. Now, here's the interesting thing about underbuying and relying on utility drawdown to meet your demand. And that is that that uh, inventory is there until it isn't. And when it isn't, there'll be a very substantial uplift in the amount of buying through both the spot market, but ultimately the term contract market, so that these utilities can quite literally keep the lights on. So it might be stalled at the moment, but by the very nature of a stall, um, whether it's an aeroplane or something else, you come out of a stall with increased velocity. And that's what I expect will happen in this market. And when that increased velocity occurs, it won't be enough to push a project through an environmental permitting process. It won't be enough to push a project through a resource drilling process, a um, government permitting process or a political process. And then that's when the investors and utilities and other observers of this market will do a head count and realize at any appreciable scale, there's only a handful of companies that can deliver those producible pounds. Well, given that nuclear is a sort of very well-established energy source around the world and growing, I'm sure, sure you'll tell us, um, why is your market, the uranium uh, market, so volatile? Shouldn't this, given it's well-established, shouldn't it just be a nice smooth buying cycle, smooth supply cycles? Um, why, why this sort of extreme nature of stalling and then starting at velocity as you describe it? Well, in a sense, it hasn't been volatile enough, you might say. Uh, if you look at what's happened to the sector since uh, Fukushima, that basically poked a 10% hole in demand within only a few months because of shutdowns in Germany and Japan. The market didn't respond quickly enough. The lack of volatility meant that the price was smoothed, particularly for producers, because of the presence of long-term contracts that by and large had locked in pricing. So even though demand suddenly disappeared, supply didn't react. So we didn't see a commensurate 10% drop in supply. And slowly that price adjusted in the meantime, there was a build-up of that inventory that I just described. And then we had to slowly see the reverse, where the uranium price uh, bottomed at about $17 a pound compared with $136 a pound in 2007 for um, comparison's sake. So now what we're seeing is the uh, emergence of the new pricing dynamic where uranium has increased from $17 a pound back in 2017. And now it's uh, emerging up to where we stand at the moment, a little bit above $30 a pound. So it's been a lack of volatility that will no doubt spark the volatility that we saw during the last cycle and which I think you're referring to with your question. Okay. Let's talk about your project. Okay, you've described the sort of change in strategy and the, and the reasons uh, for it, given what you say seems eminent, eminently sensible. But you're in Africa, you're in Namibia, it's low grade stuff there. Everyone's looking towards the Athabasca Basin, it's much higher grade, bigger margins to be made. Wouldn't you rather be operating there? No, I wouldn't. And, you know, I do get asked the question how can you compete with the Athabasca? 
But you know what? We don't need to compete with the Athabasca. Number one, there is a growing market and a rapidly growing market, particularly when you look at uranium supply being heavily depleted and depleting further from 2024, 2025 in particular. So the first point is the market's big enough for everybody. But the second point that I'd really make is uh, there are magnificent ore bodies in the Athabasca, make no mistake about it. However, if you can't produce from those ore bodies when the market really needs it, then there's something of theoretical value to those ore bodies for many years potentially. Um, it isn't a quick permitting process in the Athabasca. The world's highest grade uranium mine, Cigar Lake, took 35 years from discovery to ultimate commissioning. So it is a longer process. And look, I mean, the other thing that I'd comment on is um, grade isn't everything by any means. You need to look at the economics. And until you've, a, a company or a project has been right through the feasibility process, in this sector, in uranium in particular, you can't accept too many assumptions about your economics. But there's some truisms out there that investors follow and they get grade is king. So you're saying grade is not everything. How, 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 do, I, how do I understand that better? Why, why, why should I believe you? You've got, you've got a low grade project, so of course you're gonna say that, aren't you? Yeah, well, I mean, of course I am, but the point is we do have a low grade project and yet, it's a project that has robust economics. So let, let me break it down for you. Grade is very important. So let me take a step back. I've, I've obviously been running Bannerman for five years, but before that I've run exploration companies and I've been involved both at board level and project origination level in, in a number of exploration ventures. Now, when you're at the early stage, grade is incredibly important because you're looking at drill intersections and trying your best as an investor to guess whether there's any chance that this will ever develop into a mine. You, there's a whole lot of things that you really don't know about that project. And that's when the one thing that you can judge is great. You can look at an intercept or you can calculate it in whatever way you want. You might not even know the mineralogy that you're dealing with and what its recovery could be, but you can compare it on grade. So that's when grade is king. And I think for any investor who's looking at an exploration company, as I did in many instances, grade is extremely important. However, once you've been all the way through the feasibility process and Bannerman's been through definitive feasibility process right the way through pilot plant operation, grade is just one of the inputs that goes into economics. Equally important for us is stripping ratio because we're an open pit uh, project where uh, our single biggest cost is mining costs. So stripping ratio is a huge determinant of economics. Mineralogy and metallurgy and recoveries are a huge determinant of economics. And we're very fortunate in that we can operate heap, uh, heap leach process very inexpensively, a very quick turnaround with very low acid consumption. And that's a set of attributes that we've in fact tested for more than three years through our demonstration plant. You then look at things like infrastructure, capacity of the country to export, in this case, uranium. Uh, you can't take that for granted if you're not in an environment where the nation has been through all of the enormous number of hurdles required to export uranium to other countries. Well, you could be stuck in a very long and slow moving queue. So all of those factors go together to, in spite of the fact 
that our project is low grade, it's still got robust economics that will enable us to produce at a very profitable level once we see prices recover to the level that we think it should. So I just really wanted to set out that there's a big distinction between the mantra that's great as king and its relevance for exploration versus when you're assessing a mature, advanced development prospect, um, which is getting close to financing as we are. But how do you compete against companies saying, oh, we're lowest uh, cost, when the lower, lower, lowest uh, quartile for cost? Because um, a lot of companies are, are making that claim. So you know, clearly, as an investor, I'm going to be intrigued by that because that suggests to me they're going to make better margins. Is that not true? Well, I sometimes wonder if there's even four quartiles in our industry uh, because it seems to be the, the lowest quartile seems to be enormously crowded. Um, but you're right, we, we don't try and compete on that. We have robust economics. They're underpinned by extremely high quality technical information. You don't get this far through a feasibility process without the confidence of that high quality data. And again, we can produce. So I don't see the need, whilst everyone would love to have a cheaper project, even the companies that are genuinely in the lowest quartile, it's always nice to have extra margin. But that isn't the start and the finish of an investment in our sector. Um, I believe what is more important is, can you monetize that ore body in the time frame? in which investors require, and also in a time frame where you can maximize the return to investment. And those two things in our sector in particular really don't necessarily go together. Uh, you can have much higher grade, you can have cheaper uh, uh, operating cost, but if you're stuck at the front end of an environmental or political uh, or social process because it's uranium, uh, well, that's a theoretical value it's only when it comes out of the ground that it generates true value for shareholders. And that's where I feel very confident about the value proposition that Bannerman offers investors. Right, so at the right price, most projects can be economic. So give me some of your numbers. Tell us what you mean by an economic project. Well, it, we published our scoping study with a uranium price assumption of $65 a pound. That's a realized uranium price. So effectively that's the assumed term contract price that we would get. And at that price, our economics look good. Uh, we return a healthy IRR of north of 20%. Uh, we've got an NPV of 212 million US dollars with some potential, that's post-tax, both of those numbers. So um, certainly some potential to increase there. Um, but I think what's also interesting about our project is its leverage. Uh, it's an enormous ore body. So under that scoping study, we would only be uh, producing 50 million pounds from within a ore body that's well north of 200 million pounds. And what that means is that that is the starting NPB and the starting IRR, but we've then got the capacity to increase that uh, throughput and increase that production. And that gives us a level of flexibility into a rising uranium price environment uh, that can generate even greater returns for shareholders. Now, because of that leverage, when you start putting in assumptions of a uranium price that are closer to what we saw during the last cycle, we start to see some very significant improvements and increases on those NPV and IRR numbers. So for example, 
If we use $75 a pound as the realised uranium price, then our NPV post-tax is above 350 million US dollars. That's without taking the step of expanding our production and, and accessing even greater leverage. So for me, they're robust numbers. And as I say, we've got, we've got the ability to show shareholders over the next few years that uh, we can get into finance and into construction so that uh, that potential value realisation can become a reality. Okay. And I don't think 65 is, is unusual. I think most CEOs I speak to are asking for that 60, 65 buck level, if not more. Um, but spot price today is what? It's about 31.50. So the price needs to go up. Now, uh, typically term contract trades at about a 20% premium to spot. So that's the first comment. But yeah, undoubtedly uranium prices need to double or triple uh, for us and just about all the other scaled projects to come into production. There are probably two projects that I can name that I believe are credible that can come into production uh, at anything like the term contracts written off today's spot price. And whilst they're lovely projects, they're quite small. So I'm confident and I can say with a real degree of clarity and uh, backed by a lot of work that I've done both at World Nuclear Association and also within our own company, that the, uh, the demand will necessarily require our project to come on board. And that's both generative demand from all of the things that nuclear is now doing with decarbonisation, emissions-free energy, 24-7 baseload, and all of those attributes that we can go into if you want, but also the fact that between now and 2030, four of the ten, top 10 uranium projects in the world run out of ore. Two of them have already done that this, this year. So we are facing a, a very serious supply depletion <clears throat> in this sector over the next 10 years, and it will require all of the credible projects to come on board. So the price will, by necessity, reach those sort of incentive price levels. And a number of the projects that I pull into my model as being necessary to meet that supply deficit have incentive prices well north of not only $65 a pound, but $75 a pound. So it's my belief that we will see prices at a sustained level that uh, enable us to capture that value that I've just described. It, it's kind of interesting the way you, you position that. So it's not just a case of price will move to the you know 60 plus level out of necessity. It almost sounds inevitable because if no one's going to produce, people are going to, have to pay. It's interesting. Well, exactly. I mean, it, I would describe it as inevitable and. Then you go back to some of the old resources adages that we learned a long time ago, and probably the most apt, as old as it is and as uh, overquoted as it is, is that the best cure for low prices is low prices. And there's a number of ways in which that has featured and formed the current uranium market that we're in. Probably the most obvious one is the lack of development in the uranium sector. So. It obviously came off since Fukushima, but not many people would realise it's really fallen off the cliff since 2014. Um, dramatic depletion in the amount of money spent, not only privately, but also by state-owned enterprises in exploration and development for uranium projects. 
Um, and as I've been saying, because of the nature of the sector we're in and its unique challenges with politics and environmental issues and social issues, you can't just turn that development tap on and start pushing money into exploration and development and expect a supply response inside five, 10, in the Athabasca's case, if you use Cigar Lake as an example, you know, up to 35 years, it is a slow process. So what will happen is the price will go to the level required to incentivize whatever production is available to come on in to meet that market. And uh, many investors refer to the potential for an overshoot in this sector. And I certainly believe that at least in the medium term, an overshoot is a very real scenario here for the reason that I just discussed. There aren't enough projects to meet the supply deficit that I expect us to see between 2025 and 2028. And it will the price will necessarily incentivize whatever is available to come into the market credibly in that time frame. Time is also the other factor here, which I'm so cognizant of. And I want to talk to you about timing, okay, which is when I first started talking to you, you're at like about three cents. You're at what, 14, 14 and a half, that sort of level now. So you, you, you boys have had a good run of it. And I think a lot of that's what's going on in the market supply demand and the length of time that, um, that well, I think COVID's helping in terms of the you know, supply destruction. Um, but you guys, have you been, you seem to have been very frugal. I know you've sort of, but you've been at it a long time. So you've spent your money over a long period of time to get to where you are. So I don't necessarily want to talk about what you've done to this point. I'm talking about how do you approach the market this year? Because you've raised some money recently. You've got the option of kind of going, you know, full tilt at this thing and go running in, into the storm. Or do you sit back and follow the same methodology you have done in the past, which is just move forward at a pace that you determine. So how are you approaching it? Well, you're right. We have been very frugal and that's really baked in to our corporate culture in just so many different ways. And look, frugality has two benefits in this situation. The first one is the obvious one. There's less depletion of funds and therefore not only less uh, dilution for shareholders, but more importantly, as a management team and as the CEO of the company, I can better choose my moments at which to raise. And uh, we we only raised a small amount of money back in the days when we were trading at three cents. And we've now had the opportunity to raise a more significant amount of money just recently at uh, north of 10 cents. And that's enough money to get us all the way through to a, a final investment decision for our project. Um, now, the other thing that's really important with frugality is it buys you flexibility and it buys you patience. So I think, and I'd, I'd be pretty confident in saying that um, I would hope that investors have realised that we are a company that will steward funds very, very well, including if it needs to take some time. So what that means is I'm prepared to be patient and get the timing just right in terms of when we choose to market our project and uh, obtain term contracts and also uh, when we go into the financing and construction of our project. Um, now, this can be really important when you've got a recovering market because uh, the, the point at which you decide that is a good enough price for us and we're now going to enter the market can make a huge difference for investor returns. 
Um, typically in our sector for bank finance, you need a high level of coverage in terms of uh, committed contracting of your anticipated production levels. And so every time you write a contract, uh, you kind of, uh, there's a nervousness about, well, on the one hand, presumably I'm happy with the price because I'm signing the contract. But on the other hand, uh, that's a proportion of shareholder value that I'm capping at this point. So we think that we can afford to be patient and we've earned investors' confidence in the, uh, the very low opportunity cost in terms of expenditure for that patience. Um, but look, I'd make one other point about that, Matt. Uh, we're also very lucky, or rather I'm very lucky as CEO to have inherited a project that um, spent all of the big development dollars during the last boom with money that was raised at a very low cost of capital during the last boom. So whilst a frugal culture and frugal leadership certainly goes a long way to all of that, uh, it's only a small part of the equation in our case. Um, given that we've spent more than $80 million on the development of this project in the ground, so that's predominantly resource drilling and early stage exploration and uh, early stage engineering, um, late stage feasibility, pilot plants, et cetera, et cetera. That's money that we don't need to spend a second time. And even the feasibility work that we're doing now with the Tango 8, uh, that's small change compared to what's already been spent on this project and what would normally need to be spent on such a big project. So again, when the time's right, we're quite happy to put the turbo boost on. Uh, and as we stand at the moment, we're moving through the feasibility process with the Tango 8 knowing that with all of the work that's been done, that turbo boost will actually be effective. Uh, it's a difference between putting a turbo boost on a car that's got nice smooth bitumen as we do because of all the work that's been done and turbocharging a car that's in a potholed dirt road where, you know, with all the power in the world, it's not really going to get you there any faster. Okay, I, I get that you've lined your, your ducks up, uh, you, you, you've lined things up and everything's where you want it to be. But you use this phrase, when we choose to, and that's the bit that intrigues me here, But because most people say first mover advantage, that's key to uh, success. Why aren't you subscribing to that? Well, a first mover advantage in this sector, um, it, it only gives you an advantage if you're not confident that prices will continue to rise. The only real, there's only really two advantages to first mover. One is you're that little bit closer to shareholder return in terms of maturing and becoming into production and declaring dividends and so on. And I think in the context of this sector, uh, as I've said, patience doesn't come with a high opportunity cost in our case. But the other thing about um, the first mover advantage is you're supplying utilities at the beginning or in the early stages of a contracting cycle. And if you've got a fear that that contracting cycle won't last very long, then that first mover advantage has got a real value because you might be able to contract when others can't or others might be contracting on the downside of that cycle. But I just think we are such a long way away from that dynamic that I don't see any opportunity cost to not being a first mover. Um, for me, it's far more important to have the credibility of delivering when you feel that uh, the contracting dynamic has really heated up and there is a level of 
anxiety or perhaps even desperation amongst the fuel buyers. And that's where we want to be positioned. And do take this the right way. You're a lawyer running a mining company, right? In a sector which is 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 kind of opaque. I think it's a phrase we've used uh, when we've spoken in the past. Um, why are you so sure you're playing it right? Well, I don't think, um, and yes, I am a lawyer by trade, although it's been a good 10 years in uh, executive management roles in the sector. So I've, I've got rid of a lot of my bad habits, let's put it that way. Um, but, um, you know, when it comes to analysing a market, I'm, I've also got qualifications in economics. And uh, I don't think that having a technical role positions you any better, to be quite frank. I don't see why an engineer or a geologist can think about a market any better than a lawyer can. Um, interestingly, the nuclear sector is a very conservative sector. It relies very heavily on credibility. It relies very heavily on certain concepts of contract and antitrust. And uh, obviously, over the years, it's had quite a close interaction with national security issues, geopolitics and so on. And curiously, my background as a lawyer and particularly the type of law that I did has been an advantage with credibility. And probably the best example that I can cite with that is my chairmanship or co-chairmanship of the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Demand Group. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's the body that uh, forecasts nuclear fuel demand and uranium demand out to 2040 on a global basis. So World Nuclear Association's the industry umbrella group globally. And so in, in many respects, this is one of the most credible uh, sources of information on uranium demand that exists in the world. Uh, uh, now, you've obviously got to demonstrate a, a certain level of understanding to be entrusted with a role like that. And then what comes is all of the additional insights that you garner when you're sitting in that role and you're exposed to that information and more importantly, exposed to those different points of view and then, and all of the different thought processes that exist on a high powered committee like that. And I can point to other examples such as the work that I'm doing as, as an expert contributor to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. So what eventually happens, whether you start as a lawyer or start as something else is once you've earned the stripes of being embedded in this industry and if you've got the capacity to really think about the challenges and the solutions in this industry in a particular way you make it into some very very interesting inner circles and uh, that's a journey that I've really enjoyed and I think has also given us a, a particular way of looking at the market that I believe puts our investors and shareholders at an advantage. So what how should we poor investors be looking at the market? What are you seeing that we're not? What, what's giving you confidence that the timing is finally right, that this is the year? Oh, well, where do I start? Let's start with demand. We've, we've talked a lot about it, but I think for now and talking about timing this year, over and above the very attractive macro that we've got in uranium, we're seeing a real inflection point and a real tipping point in this sector from an ESG and green investment perspective. Um, uranium and nuclear power in particular has really found its place now in the green investing dynamic. So it's positioned right in front of what I think is one of the biggest waves of investor capital that we've seen 
at least since the dot-com era. And as we know, that wasn't sustained, but I believe the Green Finance Initiative will be sustained. So that's the thing that's uh, driving interest at the moment and driving it in a very significant way. Now, if you look at the supply side, uh, it's the depletions that we've talked about and the fact that the market hasn't corrected three years ago as it needed to, to be able to bring on enough supply to achieve a, uh, a reasonably well-balanced market during this decade. So what that usually means in other commodities, and I think is demonstrated in uranium from the last boom, is overshoots and uh, prices that exceed what might be a long-term equilibrium between supply and demand. And look, there's another dynamic as well for investors to look at. And there's a geopolitical overlay that investors should at least have a basic understanding of because it drives uranium in a way that drives very, very few commodities, possibly no other commodities. And we're seeing that geopolitical overlay really play out at the moment with the tensions between the US and China, and therefore Canada and China, and therefore Australia and China, and Canada and Australia being two of the uh, four top uranium producers in the world. Um, now, that and the fact that the uranium production sector is incredibly concentrated. So five countries produce 80% of the world's uranium, Kazakhstan being the largest, Namibia being the second or third largest, depending on which year you're looking at, and then Niger in Africa making up the balance. Uh, that is a geopolitical uh, situation that will disadvantage certain countries and advantage other countries. And Namibia being friends with all of the different geopolitical blocks that we see stands to benefit, I think, the most out of that. So that's quite a contemporary uh, element of this sector that didn't exist during the last boom. And the reason why I follow that with so much interest is uranium is a small market. Uh, it's tiny compared to gold and the other big industrial metals like uh, copper, zinc, nickel, et cetera, et cetera. But it's of crucial geopolitical importance. And so when a nation, call it China, call it the United States, call it Russia, call it India, decides that they absolutely need either uranium or they need the control of uranium, that can produce enormous value distortions just by the sheer might of those countries' geopolitical will. So it's important as an investor to make sure you're positioned for that. Might not be all of your portfolio, but certainly a substantial part of your portfolio should be exposed to that crucial upside risk. And that's where I think a Namibian investment uh, is ideal. And I would also advocate Bannerman as a Namibian investment that's uh, got the capacity to produce pounds in the next few years. Okay, so, so what happens next for you guys? What, what should we expect to see this year? It's going to sit back and, and, and react to the market, put that turbo boost on uh, if you see the right conditions. And what are the signals that you're looking for? Well, we're certainly not sitting back. Uh, we're completing our PFS on a Tango 8. Uh, we will have that ready mid-year and we're looking to uh, publish what uh, we expect to be a favourable PFS and then move straight on to a DFS. And we're fortunate not only for the reasons that I described in terms of the work that's been done, but uh, the cost of doing those feasibility studies, the time frame, and of course the risk is 
dramatically decreased by the fact we've already been down that path. You know, we've already done a DFS on a larger, more complex project. So that's something that we will push hard. Uh, I wouldn't say we're turbo boosting it yet because that comes with the cost implication that I'm not quite comfortable with yet, but we're a long way from sitting back and waiting. Um, we anticipate that the market will be ready for us when we need it. And so we're moving full steam ahead in terms of moving through that. Um, we think that the DFS will take nine to 12 months from mid-year. We'll know that with a bit more certainty once we've completed the PFS and scoped out the definitive feasibility study, but it's in that order. And because we don't have metallurgical work to do or pilot plant test work to do or environmental work to do uh, or resource drilling work to do, um, if we do decide to put the turbo boost on during the DFS project, as I say, it'll be a, a smooth road that we're applying that extra power to. So I'd expect to be able to um, move through a lot faster if we think that the market's ready for us by then. Okay, so the secret of good mining is what? Well, timing, obviously, but I'm going to add to that. In the uranium sector, the secret of good mining is timing, but also mining, because if you're not mining when the timing's right, you can't produce those results. So for us, we're a company that will be mining when the timing is right, and I think investors need to look at the other companies who can talk about timing, but if they're not producing the mining, then it's a different proposition. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.